In a world where one woman locks herself inside a quiet studio and doesn't come out until the podcast is done, welcome to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed, a place you can get connected with Donna and her friends and listen in on some great conversation. And thankfully, unlike the intro you just heard, it's a drama-free zone. You're welcome. Now, as we listen to a bit of music from the amazing Mark Sparrow to lead us in, it's my pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Donna Reed. Hello, I'm Donna. Thank you for joining me. Another episode coming to you wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram at Spotlight Conversations or at Donna Reed VO. Today, we're going to talk about a book, Webb Wilder, Last of the Full-Grown Men. He's this musician that everybody knows in Nashville and beyond Nashville. And two writers, Steve Boyle, very good friend of mine, and Shane Caldwell, who hoped to be a new good friend of mine, has put together these books based on Webb Wilder. You're going to hear all about it. He's a private eye guy from way back in the day. It's all going to make sense. Uh, but, But you didn't write the book. Hi, Donna. Well, yeah, I'm not an author. Um, You know, I'm the stuff of legend. I mean, you know, you know, the dime novels of the Old West where they wrote the things about Billy the Kid and people like that. Yeah, these books are sort of that way. They were written back in the 90s by Shane Caldwell and Steve Boyle about the fictitious me. So uh, it's kind of it's a little convoluted, but a lot of fun. And we're really glad to see this uh, reactivated or revitalized or however you want to say it, because we have the uh, two books, which were uh, beautifully packaged, and I think now in the republishing, more more beautifully packaged, but uh, it, it is reminiscent of a moment in time during which some of the old pulp novels were two in one, and you know, you'd read to the middle of the book, and then you'd have to turn it over, because uh, the second book was upside down, printed to the first, and so it's re- that's really cool, and now we have the audio book, and there's a radio play, and all this other stuff. Oh, I can't wait to talk to you about all this, but but wait, I'm going to go back a little bit. The real web, the other web, is it a multi-dimensional character? Well, uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> You're never alone with a schizophrenic, as Ian Hunter said. I like the book. It's it's double-sided paperback novel. So every time you look at it, you turn it over, you flip it over. It's just a very unique way of packaging a book. Was that your idea? No, uh, it was probably either Steve's or Shane's. Um, and as I said, it was uh, based on uh, something that really happened back in, I don't know when, you know, the first, um, those old West 1800s or early 1900s post uh, pulp novels were one thing, but maybe later they had you know the kind that was sort of fit in your back pocket um and uh by the 60s i guess they didn't do them that way but at one point they did pulp novels that way or there or that was a marketing ploy where you could put the two in one and that must be to be a musician and you have a following and you're performing and you've got a unique style of music and we're going to talk about that in a minute and then someone decides to write a book based on you what did you think did they go to you and go hey you're going to be the focus of this book. Well, it's not quite as, uh, it wasn't quite as unprecedented a situation as you might think. You know, I always played in bands, you know, and I always played rock and roll and, and dabbled in what used to be called progressive country and, and that sort of thing. I uh, made this film with these guys in uh, 1980 called Web Wilder Private Eye. So see that predates all of this, and then and then it took on a life of its own. It was it was a young director student film, 
uh, with a lot of input from uh, R.S. Field, who later went on to write so many songs and uh, produce so many records that I would make. He's a brilliant guy. And uh, we were a little older, but this this he worked at a college, and this guy that was the director needed a student senior project film, and it, it was serendipitous. And so he got an A on it. It entered a bunch of festivals. It's 13 minutes long, and it got national cable TV airplay on a show called Night Flight on the USA Network. And uh, then later, a couple of record deals later, uh, you know, we moved to Nashville from Mississippi. And, of course, the filmmaker moved to Austin. And um, we got to make another Web Wilder film. And, and, and we used Shane, one of the authors of this book, uh, to play a character in this other film called Horror Hayride, which was the title of an instrumental we had recorded. And so we got to be friendly with him. And then our friend Steve Boyle, who you know, of course, yes. video director and super creative guy, was doing video stuff for the Hard Rock Cafe and got Shane and I to do some stuff. And next thing you know, Steve is, has a broad scope of knowledge of pop culture, you know, so he knew about um, some of these old films and pulp novels and things. And uh, next thing you know, they're they're writing this book. And then uh, just like now, when he's revitalized it, you know, Steve kind of catches fire and uh, says, hey, let's do some music and, and you know, rallies all these celebrities and... Uh, uh, Jim Hoke, who is a real maestro, multi-instrumentalist to do the bed music. And uh, and then it went kind of straight to nowhere. I mean, a very limited um, publishing of the physical book sold out and um, certainly sold a lot of them to my fans who, you know, who buy the T-shirts and the albums and stuff. And um, we never could quite um, – he, he almost had a deal with National Public Radio or somebody, but it fell through and uh, – the recession hit and all those sorts of things. And um, meanwhile, Shane is a hilarious guy. And of course, we got him to be an actor in that film where we got close to him. But uh, there's a lot you could say about him. He's a fascinating guy. And I always say he's the funniest guy in Nashville, you know, and because uh, he used to do stand up and his own local television shows and all these characters and things. So um, there was a lot of creativity going into the pot on the whole project. So this one movie for college has expanded mm -hmm. your brand well yeah and it kind of created a brand in a way you know because uh, I was born John Webb McMurray and uh, my mother's sister lived with us a lot of the time and you can't make these names up her name was her married name was Montressa Wilder love it and uh, next thing you know I have a stage name called Webb Wilder and I'm wearing a hat Good thing because I was losing my hair. So, you know, I had never been in a band where I was the only lead singer. And so, you know, it was just a lot of changes happening. And uh, it gave me um, a focus. Because, you know, if somebody says, write a song, you go, well, what kind of song? But if somebody goes, write a song about dogs and make it a country song. Well, that narrows your focus. You know what you're doing. So, you know, we kind of had a basis of, of a persona from the Web Wilder film and everything. And um, I carried that over to the stage. And then as the years went by, I mingled it with my own personality more and got a different slant on it. But uh, I never was one of these people who um, followed anything other than just my muse. You know, I never really looked at it like, well, maybe we ought to do one kind of music and let the marketing people market it, you know, which is what people were doing by the time I got to make records. When I was a kid and becoming a fan of records, there were people like a group you may have heard of called the Beatles. And every album they made was full of eclectic choices of different 
influences and genres, and I, I thought that's what it takes to make a good album. But by the time I started making records, it was more like, we want you to have a sound, and we want to market a thing. And it kind of worked a little bit here and there. So we got some national airplay and some major deals and uh, one thing and another. And then along comes Americana. And that's it, it kind of opens its arms to all genres. And that's, you know, I'm very involved with it now as a DJ, among other things. You're a musician and then you play this private eye, Webb Wilder. What was yeah. music like after the movie came out? How, I mean, were you able to really... Um, push your music career with this Web Wilder private eye? Yeah, to a certain degree, because um, like I say, it sort of gave an image and a look and a voice, speaking voice, you know, to the, uh, you sort of had a, a persona focus more, you know, and um, I was in a band called The Drapes, uh, in which I was not the only lead singer, but at the time of the film, and some of that style of music, which was sort of a blend of rockabilly and British invasion and surf instrumentals and rhythm and blues and country and all of it carried over the cover of the first album you know shows um some flying saucers and stuff you know uh, there were flying saucer as a flying saucer spoof web wilder private eye and uh so then by the time we made the third album which was the second major label deal mm-hmm. we talked them into letting us make that second film and then they marketed this is pre-DVDs. They marketed what was then called a home video. Uh, the director came back for the second film with the first film and the second film. And, and when the album Doodad was first released, there was you could buy both in one package. But then record stores didn't know where to put it. That's back in the era of record stores. Do you put it in the comedy section or the rock section or what? So it was seven seconds ahead of its time, you know. I was reading your bio, and it says you are a lover of rock and roll and all things outlaw country. Growing up in Mississippi, what did you listen to? Well, I uh, was born loving music for some reason, and, um, you know, I listened the very first music I can remember listening to, the first two albums I had. Like when I was in the fourth grade and the Beatle thing happened, I already had a couple of albums. I had uh, Ricky Nelson's Million Sellers and Elvis Presley's It Happened at the World's Fair, and so... All the cool people, if there were any, and all the uncool people liked the Beatles. And I thought, these squares have never liked anything cool before. So it took me about five seconds to surrender to the Beatles, and then I readily did. And then the floodgates were open, you know. And then you're you're buying albums by the Birds and, you know, um, hearing music by the Hollies and hearing Wilson Pickett sing Land of a Thousand Dances on the radio and all the floodgates. And then you had, you know, Buck Owens and Johnny Cash crossing over to pop with hits and the television shows for music and all that. And so, um, yeah, you know, I I was really immersed in what we now know as classic rock, but I was also watching the country music syndicated television programs that had Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner and Loretta Lynn and Flatt and Scruggs and all that. So um, it's always been like that for me. You know, I've just been kind of absorbing what I like and then moving on to the other thing and then blending them. So would you categorize your music now? We'll talk about your new album, uh, Night Without Love. Would you call it Americana? Well, I've always just called it all rock and roll because, you know, like I say, when I was a kid, that's what the rock groups were doing. They were, um, they were very eclectic in their choices, but nowadays you would have to call it Americana. And I heard you say you were a DJ, um, but I also found out that um, you were one of the first satellite DJs at XM Radio. This is funny, too. Uh, in my meandering life, before I got to Nashville 
to stay. I had certainly lived in Austin in the 70s, and I had come back from Austin at one point to my hometown of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And within a year or two or three, that's when the uh, Web Wilder film would happen. But anyway, I got my first job as a DJ at an AM country station. And it was kind of awful, except you, the DJs could still slip in a few things of their own choices back then. But it was the disco country era. It was the disco country era. Awful. So then many years pass, and I make all the records, and I do all the touring. And I was in one major motion picture uh, called The Thing Called Love with Samantha Mathis and some other people. And, uh, you know, um, uh, I'll think of her name in a minute. She's a huge star. Sandra Bullock. Yeah. And... um so anyway, and some indie films and went through a divorce and I was between albums and I was sitting on a couch in a semi-ratty apartment wondering what I was going to do. And I got a call from this guy who was a big scene maker here and a musician and a promoter named Billy Block, who has since passed away. And he said, uh, Jesse Scott is going to be the program director of XM's Americana channel and she wants to hire you. So she did because she knew me. As an artist, as a musical artist, most of, and this was brand new stuff, you know, there were, uh, no, America had never had satellite radio. Most of the people for DC, uh, for XM were in DC, but a few of us were here and we were based out of what was then the brand new Country Music Hall of Fame. So it was quite an adventure. And uh, so I, I didn't realize there was Americana radio. I knew there was Americana music, but I, I didn't quite, hadn't really thought about it, you know, and, uh, so I kind of got him, and I knew about, you know, Steve Earle and Emmylou Harris and Jerry Jeff Walker and Guy Clark and some of the real sort of Mount Rushmore people. But then there were all these other people, and I was like, oh, wow. So uh, it was interesting, you know, and of course my music got played there too, and uh, I was making records and doing gigs and traveling and recording my shows and all that and uh, survived an 80-man layoff, and then later they laid everybody else off. And it was they were there was such a big investment, it was hard for them to get in the black, which eventually led to the merger of XM and Sirius. So that runs its course, and then like 10 years after that, my same program director, who is a real pioneer in Americana Radio, Jesse Scott, called me here in Nashville and said, we're converting Middle Tennessee State University's radio station to a 24-7 Americana format, would you do the weekly chart show? And I said, sure. And I did that for a couple of years, and I'm still doing that. And then the pandemic struck, and she called me and said, how would you like to also be on Monday through Thursday afternoons? And I said, well, I'm in lockdown. You know, all my gigs are canceled. I, I guess so. Sure, let's do it. And so it's ongoing. Yeah, a lot of guests I've had on, on the podcast who are, they first start out in radio, they first started out as a musician or only as a writer or only as a guitar player. Since the pandemic and even a little bit before, they're finding out they're doing a lot of things under the creative umbrella. Do you think today mm -hmm. that is something that's very important? Yeah, the pandemic has changed everything. And, um, you know, some things will come back, but some things it's like, you know, water wearing away stone. You just time st doesn't stand still. So some things are forever changed, I think. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just for instance, like the people who got used to working at home and have decided they're not going back to the office, they're going to keep working at home no matter what, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think the diversity thing, you know, because like I've, I've noticed um, the people who really their only gig was touring, they were really hard hit, you know, and um they had to get real creative. And so 
all of us have done the streaming shows. I saw one guy, I'm not going to name his name, and his whole deal is music, but he was a cook in a restaurant for a while. Now he's back on the road, you know, and he's just rolling with the punches and doing what he could do. He just did it. You can't, because that could be the source of some of his songs, too, the things you do outside of music. The new album, Night Without Love, did you write that during the pandemic or right before, or how how did that happen? Some of it, um, that particular song is a very old song that no one had ever recorded. It certainly lent itself to a great cover. You know, the guy that did the the cover, the artwork, uh, is a legend in in his own right. I love it. No, that was my concept, and he just ran with the ball. I said, his name is Flournoy Holmes, and one of the things he's best known for is having done the classic Almond Brothers band Eat a Peach album cover years ago. Yeah. And he had done my doodad album cover and all that sort of stuff. And he's very friendly with the guy that owns the record label I record for. So I said, Flournoy, here's the thing. The title, I want to make this song, Night Without Love, the title cut, because I think there's some kind of romance comic book way to enhance that with cover art. I didn't tell him much more than that. And, and boy, he just really delivered the goods. How did you hear that song? Or when did you hear that song? Well, because my old buddy who I grew up with, who was so involved in much of my career, uh, R.S. Field, had written the song back when we did this, had this band called The Drapes, back during the years where we recorded uh, the film, or filmed the film, Web Wilder Private Eye. And I just, I'm a real sucker for a great line, you know, and I love that line, uh, I don't see how she can stand standing there against a man with a face like an idol from the Yucatan. And, uh, but, you know, that song didn't really seem to connect with people. Um, I don't know if it was too complicated or something, but it has a very positive chorus, you know. Uh, it's love, it's a sound in your heart down low and all that stuff. But um, we got a lot of airplay on a song, another old song that he and another friend of ours and I, it was a three-way write, had written called uh, Buried Our Love. You never know. You never know what's going to connect with the public, the songs that I'm really excited about. Like we did this Los Lobos cover, and we had one of the most respected guitarists in the world, Richard Bennett, play on it. It's called uh, Be Still. It has drawn zero comment. <laughs> and we certainly didn't hear from Los Lobos. So you, you just never know. It's just timing and luck, do you think? But it also takes a good song. So you've got the good song. So it's just a matter of just making everything else come into play. Well, generally speaking, um, I think a lot of people, I'm not alone, just figure they're going to do what they like. Hopefully other people will like it too. And that, that certainly often works. But in my case, I always tend to write some sad songs or some love songs or some ballads or some softer stuff, but people really want me to rock. I think that's, they kind of got to know me that way. And uh, so I always try to hedge my bet because I'm oriented that way anyway due to the Beatles, you know, like you have Long Tall Sally and Yesterday or something on the same album with the Beatles, you know. any You can look at any album I've ever done and um, pretty much, maybe not all together, and there are going to be some slow songs and some fast songs, you know. But I guess my point is sometimes you can really please yourself and think this is great and it just doesn't seem to reach anyone else. But you never know who you haven't heard from because, you know, time will pass and suddenly you'll get a comment on something because it's like putting messages in bottles. You have no idea who really gets it. It's not like everybody sends you a telegram, you know. (laughs) That's a great analogy. There's so many bottles out there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm talking to Webb Wilder, musician, um, and also the inspiration, the story behind Webb Wilder, Last of the Full Grown Men, The Doll by Shane Caldwell and Steve Boyle. 
Tell me a little bit about the story. Well, the cover has been updated a bit. The original one looks a little more like Barbie, and um, I don't know if I can name a name, but the the new cover looks a little bit more like the actual doll is described in the book. Um, It's basically a story about these, uh, and it's all done very kind of tongue-in-cheek pulp novel, lots of one-liners, lots of comedy. But these these two little girls are in a contest or something, and they... uh, they tie and they award them this one limited edition doll for their prize and they fight over it and they tear it in two and they were best friends, but they grow up to be uh, just, you know, lifelong enemies. And in steps Webb Wilder in the middle of this decades later and uh, hijinks ensue, you know, in a case, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a detective kind of case too, of course. And so, uh, you know, the mystery unravels and, you know, the innocent are protected and the guilty are, right. are uh, receive now, justice and all that sort of stuff. And you're the audiobook narrator, of course. Yes, and see, I had fun with that because way back when, even though there's a lot of audio-related mat- material, there was never a reading of the book like an audio book. And uh, I've done that professionally for other people's books, you know, in a straight voice. And uh, in this one, I felt obligated to, to be kind of in character a bit, you know. So it was. I rediscovered these books doing the audio versions. You know, these books came out the first time in the '90s, so it's a lot of years later, and realized how how good they are. Really, Shane and Steve really did a fine job. And I, I, I would like, for instance, I used to live in the country near a, a place called Worsham's General Store, and it had been there since 1912. I'm sure that's how these guys got the character <laughs> name of Wormy Worsham. I saw men. that. When you were reading the book, now that you're you're in character and wow, this is good, do you go to Steve and Shane and, and say, hey, I got an idea for another book? I haven't yet because I've just been so busy. Once in a while, there's another guy with a studio here who will call me to actually have me read another book uh, for money. So that, that happened in the middle of doing these and I'm doing the radio show and uh, I'm trying to sort out when and if my band can return to the stage. So I, unfortunately, the answer is no. I no. may yet have that idea, of course. So what do you have planned? New album? New CD? I know it's tough right now. You're not on tour. It is tough right now. And, you know, every album I've ever made, I wondered if it would be the last because they're, they're expensive. And I've never had my own money to make them with. So I always have to get a record deal, so to speak. I've got some ideas. And, you know, we, we did what I call an archival release a few years ago. We sort of uh, looked through what had never come out and did one of those albums. And I've got an idea for another one of those that I think the diehard fans would like as sort of a, a placeholder kind of release uh, of some demos and outtakes and things. But but I'm writing like every day. My trouble, you know, now that we have cell phones, we can put our ideas for songs down. Yeah. And the temptation to do that is to do it and think you'll get back to it later and you don't. Paul McCartney was talking about this. He said, you know, in the old days, if we had an idea, we just finished the song. And uh, so I, I, per, I put ideas down pretty much every day, and I rarely look at them a second time. So I've got to get better on that. And I'm not, I'm not reliant on my own writing 100% and never have been. And I think I hear a lot of artists who should be hip to that thing because, you know, how many people write good enough that every song they write and put out is good? That's a matter of opinion, but in my opinion, 
not many. And, you know, I always want to say to these people, you, you heard of this band, The Beatles? Well, they did some songs by some other guys you may not have heard of named Chuck Berry and Carl Perkins and Larry Williams and Buck Owens and Smokey Robinson. You might want to think about throwing a cover in there every once in a while. But but I go too much maybe the other way. Maybe I should write more. But I think you have to be um, hard on your own songs, and I, I certainly am, maybe to my own detriment. Tell me about uh, Nashville right now. It's like most things. It's good and it's bad. For those of us who have been here a while, it's feeling a little crowded. That Nashville TV show was good for a lot of people I knew because they worked in it. And it kind of represented certain aspects of Nashville better than they really are, I guess. But it made everybody's little bright-eyed daughter and son move here. But there's so many things on TV in addition to Nashville that are encouraging people to get out there and become celebrities, become stars. So it's probably a little bit of everything, but Nashville has all these... Yeah, the voice and all that stuff, right. sure. Well, yeah, we have the greatest musicians in the world, and whoever was the best musician in anybody's hometown may well have moved here, you know. And uh, So I love it, really. I mean, I bitch about it, but I love it, and I haven't found any place better to be. But it's, you know, this is an old guy thing, you know. You, you miss the, sometimes the way things were, and Every corner now has a faceless, modern, giant, blocky building that looks like a stack of Lego blocks to me. And uh, so I remember Austin. Austin's all crowded now, too. It is. They they were like wondrous places. Nashville and Austin were wondrous places for a kid who grew up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, because everything you wanted a town to have was there. But the traffic, it had a, had a sm- smaller town feel. They were like big places with more of a small town feel. And uh, it's just, you know, change is the only constant. So things have changed. They have. But you see, the buildings in Nashville that you described it could be the backdrop for the new next Webb Wilder book. That's a good idea because there's so much grim facelessness there, and there's probably a, <laughs> stories to imagine. But it, but it's not as rich a gravy as when the buildings all had character and identity to them, you know, the buildings themselves. And there's still a few of them, but they tend to tear down a lot of stuff here, which is another bad thing. The real estate is so valuable. It's nuts here it's now. Crazy. Webb Wilder, Last of the Full-Grown Men, The Doll, written by Shane Caldwell and Steve Boyle. It's on Amazon. And also, Webb, you, all the news about your album, Night Without Love, one of my favorite album covers. I'm putting it out there again. I know I said it earlier. WebWilder.com. That's your website, right? Yes, thank you. Thank you for being a part of the show today. It was, I, you've enlightened me to more Americana music that I'm going to be tuned into for sure. Well, I hope so, Donna. Thank you so much for having me on here. I, I hope I wasn't too chatty. You were great. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.